On today's episode, we have Mike Mazur, self-storage specialist. He's going to teach you everything you need to know about self-storage and what's going on today. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right. We have Mike Mazer on the podcast today. Basically, every episode I've done so far has really just been like general real estate investing or about multifamily. And I think something that I want to do as part of the podcast rebrand here is also, uh, you know, like I mentioned, do a more just solo one topic episodes, but also start introducing people to other real estate product types and just kind of more like a little bit more what's going on in the real estate investment space. So, um, got Mike on here today who specializes in self storage and I want to pick his brain known him a long time and he has a nice uh, track record on investing in unique niches and I know um, episode I think four we had him on and when he was uh, buying uh, post offices and rolling those up uh, and he's working on self storage today he's the managing director of growth and acquisitions at Elmdale partners so welcome Mike thanks great to be back Great. Well, yeah, if you want to reintroduce yourself, I mean, I, maybe I already did it, but uh, no, I'm it. happy to. So my name is Mike Mazur. I, um, by way of background, went to school, University of Wisconsin, majored in finance and real estate, traded for a couple of years, then uh, cut my teeth in re real estate underwriting, um, working for a mall investment company then a generalist company uh, called Westminster Capital, where we did a lot of ground up development and opportunistic investing. And uh, that's where I really had like my very generalist background. Um, so learned about assets and in multifamily, industrial, seniors living, medical office, um, and self-storage, um, and office too. And picked up my MBA at University of Chicago along the way. Uh, then moved over to American um, Postal Infrastructure where I was head of business development for the company there where I was in charge of acquisitions, we grew the portfolio out to 500 plus uh, post office properties before ultimately transitioning to Elmdale Partners, which uh, is a group of guys not dissimilar from me in approach where they uh, really like niche style investing. Uh, they had invested in general commercial real estate. They have a very uh, um, significant portfolio of Century 21 portfolio, uh, Century 21 offices that they own throughout the country. And um, I've been charged with acquiring self-storage properties, um, which I've been living and breathing now for about a year and a half. Nice. Yeah. So today's episode is going to be all about self-storage. So a new product type we haven't talked about, you know, product type being like multifamily or industrial office retail. Uh, you know, those would be examples of product types and all those ones that you had mentioned too, sort of the um, less talked about ones like student housing, senior housing, self-storage. So just for people who don't know, what's a self-storage property? Sure. So I think the easiest way to think about it is um, it's, it's extra space for, um, it's, it's extra space. That's not far from your house. Well, it's funny if there's a company called, yeah, there's, that. a, there's, a, there's a company yeah. called extra space. It's a, <laughs> it's a very prominent self-storage public, uh, real estate investment company. Um, but, uh, I think of them as glorified garages where you have somebody that offers you the garage size that you need for you to put the things that you need, um, for what's typically a shorter duration. Um, now 
it's very general like that on purpose because it's not unusual to have hundreds of different tenants who are in your single singular self-storage facility and the reasons why they're there are completely varied and uh, uh, they just know that they have a need for um, a place to put their extra stuff and they don't necessarily want to commit to having a larger apartment or a larger home or a larger office, but they view this as a good solution. Okay. And that's makes the way sense. to think about it. How long, what's, I guess, what are the, the buildings like then typically? So, um, there's a couple different kinds people tend to, uh, have preferences where if they're in the city, which you'll typically see because of land values being so expensive, you'll see podium built multi-story facilities where um, there's an elevator, uh, there's many stories, and there's kind of two categories in storage uh, where it's either climate controlled or it's not. So either there, the property is temperature regulated in some way or it's <clears throat> not. And uh, a typical example of where it's not, where it's like uh, you have a row of garages that you can basically drive up to. There's no climate control there. The garage is not uh, electric. You know, you gotta you gotta hit the switch and and move the garage door up. But you have your space there, and you don't care. Uh, like this matters a lot in Chicago, where you have incredible temperature swings, uh, where it can be incredibly cold or incredibly warm. But what you're storing can survive that. You just want it to be out of the elements. Uh, and, uh, that, that would be kind of your, your alternative where if you don't have a, a podium built building, you have a building that you can either literally open the door, uh, um, unload the stuff from your car, put it in, drive out, drive away. You got drive up storage. And then you have a hybrid where you'll have uh, single story buildings where there'll be hallways. And instead of being able to drive up directly to your um, storage unit, you open the door, you go into the hallway. There's a bunch of garage doors that look like yours. You find your number, you find your lock, and, and that's where your stuff is. Yeah, I think the most sort of typical, I mean, we're in Chicago, so we think of like a bigger building. Everything's more than one story basically here. Actually, probably your most run-of-the-mill storage building is just, it's like at a, gravel driveway parking lot and there's just like little sheds essentially that are lined up with the uh, roll-up doors and that's yeah people just looking like i already maxed up my garage or whatever space wise i want to put some stuff that i barely use uh that maybe would normally be in a basement or attic or something christmas trees whatever extra bikes when it's winter time and um you know so it's uh that's that's how what i think of yeah it's really interesting people try to solve for this in all sorts of unusual ways. I've seen platforms that try to sell people's garages that aren't being used as like a storage facility. Sometimes people you'll see like uh, pods where people have uh, like basically a storage unit like on their driveway or right next to it. And then, um, you know, ultimately storage facilities for, for many people is an ideal solution for them. Um, yeah. What kind of people rent these then? Would you say? I'd say that the most common reason that people rent, uh, is because they're moving. Uh, but it's not the majority reason. Like there's many other reasons why people end up moving into a storage unit. And I think that it evolves beyond that where it's like the most simple way to think about it is there's a lifestyle change that people have encountered. Um, maybe they're moving, maybe they bought a boat, bought an RV, uh, maybe they're downsizing, buying a second home. They had a divorce. They had a death in the family. Um, there's some kind of material lifestyle change that is occurring where they don't know what to do with the change for now. So the solution is storage. Um, and sometimes it's a more permanent solution than they had anticipated. Sometimes 
Sometimes it really is just a couple months or a month. Sometimes it's a couple years. Um, but it provides people with that flexibility because overwhelmingly storage um, leases run month to month. Do they start out month to month? Yes. Typically? Okay. Typically, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's very interesting. You have, a, you have an entire rent roll of hundreds of units that are month to month. And, uh, you know, you might have people on average staying there for eight months, sometimes longer. More recently, we've been seeing people staying longer than usual. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's very unexpected because you have this month to month tenant, you know, multifamily, you usually have like a 12 month tenant right. and, uh, and you, you can go to the bank and show them that. In self-storage, the industry's gotten comfortable with the fact that theoretically everybody could leave tomorrow, um, but they don't. And there's there's tremendous historical data to support that. Right. Well, yeah. And in hotels, you got to rent them out every night. Yeah, right. And lenders figured out how to lend on that and people to build and buy those. What do um, then the average length is eight months then of tenancy or? Uh, it, it varies. Uh, it varies from. For us, asset to asset, I think somewhere around, call it like six to eight months uh, is kind of like the median. But then we have tenants that are staying there for tremendously longer than that um, years sometimes. Um, and that's not unusual. Um, and so that's where it gets really interesting because you have some people that are like, ah, I just want to use the storage facility for like a couple of days and they mean it. You have other people that are like, oh yeah, like, I don't know what to do with this, but I'll figure it out soon. And they don't. And yeah. they're figuring it out soon. They already did it. They decided to stay in the storage facility. And so you're catering to, to both types of folks in the same facility. Yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I've had a storage unit for four years now. Same, same place. Um, yeah, where that where it's just, you know, we had a kid and there's so much extra stuff that you buy and then don't don't need again for a while unless you have more kids or uh, holiday decorations. Yeah, that's what basically mine consists of. Yeah. So No, that makes sense. And uh um like four years is on the longer end of storage, but I've seen much longer than that. Um and in a lot of ways it's just like very convenient because if for some reason your needs change, your lifestyle changes, and you can roll up the storage into a different place or you need more storage. You know, mo most interesting thing for me too is I see a lot of transfers uh, when I look at our like daily pricing. And like people are like, ah, I still want storage, but I want a bigger unit, a smaller unit. Um, and like people are conscientious of how much space they're storing outside of their home. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because I mean, it's priced on the size, so they think they can save it or you know, that makes sense to downsize. Right. And if you need more, you need more. So yeah, I mean, I need storage cause I, I don't have an attic, a basement or a garage. So like, where's this stuff going to go? So, but yeah, if I had any of that, maybe I could just throw it in the top of my garage or something. Right. But yeah, cause that, I wonder if then if in like a more urban area, you get longer tenancy, you know, with not having any like storage in your unit, really any meaningful amount. The big thing that changes with uh that i've observed with with more urban areas is the amount of space that people need is less so um you know you might average something like 130 square feet in suburban markets for like average unit size where in the city it's it's very standard to be well below 100 on average um because People will live in multifamily units. They literally don't have that extra closet. Um, That's interesting. Or that extra something that they need, but they have the stuff for it. And then it's like <coughs> those, those people have the same lifestyle changes that people in the suburbs do. So it's like those needs are there. And then it's like, do they do they store that uh, close to home, or you know how do they handle it? And you know in this in the storage community. In general, people think about things on a radius basis. So your competitive market is kind of like most of your market is captured within a 10 mile radius. 
and the like majority of that is captured within a five mile radius and then when you're in a city that narrows even more because of traffic congestion ease of access where it's like people want to be very very close to their stuff yeah and so um it's just it's just very interesting how that changes like when you look at multi multi-family i think you focus more on neighborhoods the street you're on Whereas storage is really more focused on like distance from where people are. Interesting. Yeah, that may, that's yeah, that's interesting. I I can see that you don't need to be in a prime location necessarily, where they you know people are gonna generally find you online these days. Yeah. And then you just need to be close to where they are. That's right. It's all about proximity to where they are. Now there's uh, uh, like people do pay attention to traffic counts, um, especially when they're building new. Um, but it's not unusual for storage facilities just because of like how storage facilities were originally put up to be in kind of obscure locations and have very good occupancy be managed by major brands or owned by, by major institutional investors because of the importance of the radius. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Then, but even today, like sort of having that free drive-by advertising, like that's still valuable very much so interesting yeah we uh so elmdale's uh storage brand is called store safe uh we have uh, i should also say that the majority of the properties that we own are uh, are kind of that first floor lots of drive up type of uh units so we don't have a lot of podium built property but we do have one on, in Pilsen, uh, where as you're driving toward uh, Indianapolis from Chicago or Indiana from Chicago, you can see it. You see the store safe branding. Uh, and uh, it, it's definitely material and it, it helps tremendously to have that kind of branding right off the highway. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of the busiest stretches of highway in the country. Right. So, right. Nice. Yeah. Pilsen's a neighborhood in Chicago, just right outside of downtown basically so you'll get the crazy amount of people driving by nice well yeah then why do people invest in self-storage what's like the benefits in your mind so actually what makes it really interesting is i think a lot of people that have had no real estate experience think about how they want to retire and one of the reasons why despite having several major institutional REITs and institutional investors in self-storage. There's still uh, ma and pa and even commodity type of component to the business because the cash flows are rather reliable. It's performed incredibly well um, when you compare it to other asset classes. And the asset size is anywhere from like a couple hundred thousand dollars to like $20 million. And I mean, in, in excess of that, if you're looking into major cities, but like in general, we're buying properties somewhere between like six and $15 million. Um, but we could be buying properties that are much smaller than that. Um, and a lot of people use self-storage as a retirement vehicle, um, because, uh, historically occupancies have been really good in the, uh, kind of high 80s to low 90s. Um, people have been able to push rent incredibly well. Uh, and if you look at like uh, REIT rent performance, um, you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of negative years. And when you do, it's not really substantial in terms of like year over year rent growth. And so, what you end up getting is a diversified rent roll of no single tenant that is like dominating dominating your rent roll so it's pretty unusual to have like a 500 unit facility one guy has 800 or like 80 units or something like that it's not really a thing it's like usually everybody has one maybe a couple units and that's kind of it um it's very easy to switch from one tenant to another there isn't like a huge broker network. You know, there's marketing costs that you have to pay if you if you if you, if you are willing to pay for that. Um, like there's companies that aggregate all the storage 
out there and they'll they'll charge you for that but it's <clears throat> it's not really that expensive to get new tenants um yeah and to jump in like multifamily one of the things like this what you're talking about this is what i like about multifamily where compared to let's say retail or industrial or office you have so many more tenants than one of those buildings. So you got that diversification. They're all making money at different places. It's not just like you're relying on one business. All the tenants have generally different jobs. There's not that much concentration at like, oh, they're all at one employer. Like at the office building, it would be you're just renting to that one employer. And to turn over an apartment's not expensive compared to a retail space, office, industrial. But self-storage for those, at least for the turnover, that takes it a step further. I mean, turning over an industrial or uh, self-storage space is like nothing. You know, you what vacuum and sweep it and then uh, change the, you know, that's about it. Yeah, it's it's really it's very low tenant transaction costs is how I think about it in my mind or like I, I think better phrasing is tenant transition costs from switching from one tenant to a, the other. It's just not that not that costly to do. Um, so you have a diversified rent roll, historically strong occupancies. Um, and like I had said before, it's in moments of transition that people need storage. So in the early moments of a recession, you'll see occupancies drop in storage, you'll see rents decrease. But then as a recession moves on and people's lifestyles are changing, um, people's need for storage goes up again. And so it's an asset class that tends to do well in moments of recession and it just does well in moments of change. Um, and so you have a pretty stable asset class. Um, and so what you end up finding is institutional investors and mon pond first time real estate investors alike competing for the same storage facilities because of the size of the deals. Um, and so the short answer is a lot of different types of people invest in storage. That's interesting. And then again, the average deal size, like for all self storage, would you say it's, you know, smaller than you'd think in terms of the like asset size? Um, you said it was like six or so million probably, or yeah, what, what would I'd, you say? I'd say somewhere around like uh, seven, eight million is kind of typical per property. You know, um, if you, if you look at uh, like institutional portfolios and the average deal size, typically people wouldn't go smaller than like 40, 40,000 square feet, somewhere between like 40 and 100,000 square feet, like 70 to 100,000 square feet was like ideally considered like institutionally investable. Um, but those metrics are always changing. So storage used to have somebody who lived in the apartment above the office and like would manage the property on site and that was your on-site oh, really? manager yeah and you still have that sometimes um and it's like uh um you have that extreme to um self-storage properties that are 100 percent remote managed and there is no manager and then people are interacting with like a kiosk or their phone and that's it and you have users that have preferences between the two. Sometimes people want to have somebody at the facility. They feel more secure. <clears throat> Other times they don't want to interact with anybody and they like the ease of being able to like go visit their storage unit, uh, without having to have a conversation. And the industry right now is going through a moment of transition where it's unclear, um, you know, what people prefer every time. Um, we've certainly transitioned the majority of our properties into um, uh, offering so I like within the regions we're in, we're offering some on-site management and some remote. Um, and it it's been really interesting figuring that out. Yeah, there's uh, Nick Huber, the sweaty startup guy on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen, ran across him, but he's got... Um, he has a big online presence, like a quarter million followers on Twitter. And he he has a self-storage portfolio. That's his main business. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see what he's done where he's buying smaller facilities, generally, you know, two, 
till you know two million on up, but a lot of them are in that like two to four million dollar deal size, and uh, he remotely manages all of them, uh, and he has people that are in the Philippines doing it. So he has so you don't you're they they have a really good process and systems where they have like their facility mapped out, and then uh, just sort of like everything written out. So sort of almost anybody could jump in and be the customer support for that facility where they want to know where do I go to get to my unit they'd have a map you know that one's in the back corner you go down the hall take a right check it out let me know what you think and so yeah they've done well um it sounds like buying those kind of deals and in most of the time getting like there's not the need for the person that's living there you know with how they're doing it so then they cut that cost and then they um they turn on all the um you know the price maximizing software or whatever it is or figure out how to push the rents better than the mom and pop owner and have done really well in their deals. So just, just operating better and it's not that hard to operate these. So I think that's, I, you know, being the acquisitions person, I think that, um, it's like, yes and no. I, I think, I think it's very, it's much easier to operate than like the more cumbersome, cumbersome type of assets like retail, probably much easier than multifamily. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there is like a customer experience and operating experience that you have to be cognizant of. And sometimes that's, uh, um, difficult for like people who are, uh, numbers oriented, investments oriented. Like I look at appeal and all of a storage property, like the way that I look at it, the way that our director of operations looks at it from like a customer standpoint is very different. Yeah. And so it's like, I, I agree with that. Um, but also like, I recognize that there's a very important, like customer facing component to the business. Um, that sometimes it's a person being there you can interact with. And sometimes people just really love the ease of being able to visit their unit hassle-free. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, where do you think then like self-storage operations sort of stacks up in terms of difficulty compared to the other product types? I think what makes it, uh, I think individually it's, it's much easier to manage than, um, like office or retail or multifamily, um, I'd say probably industrial is much easier than storage yeah, because you like, just have less tenants. Yeah, and it's mostly there's not any common areas. It's it's easy where, yeah, we've owned office deals or one, and it was almost like renting or managing an apartment building where there's just requests every day, little things, where um, we don't get that in retail for us because we have like strip centers, not any malls. Um, but But there are some like, very real, not set it and forget it types of things you have to do. Like you have to make sure your facility is clean. If you have issues, if a tenant has an issue, he has to be able to, or she has to be able to reach out to somebody, um, and, and make sure that they're addressed urgently. Like they can't get into their unit or there's a problem with their door or there's some kind of issue with the HVAC electric, like those are issues that day to day I don't deal with that I know are very real. And like, uh, you want to make sure that your facility is clean and well-maintained. And it's like, whether that's a remote issue or, um, there's someone on site, like that has to be paid attention to, like, that's the customer facing component that really matters. Yeah. So then people invest in self storage for, let's say cash. Uh, I'll say first before getting into that, like the performs well in a recession. And then historically strong rent growth. Yeah. Diversified tenants. What else? Missing anything or? Um, I mean, I, I think part of it is what you hit on too, where it's like, uh, it's not as much work managing a self-storage facility as it is some of the more like, uh, like a hotel or something like that. Yeah. One thing that I think self-storage and apartments have sort of, going for them in terms of like the mom and pop ownership, which is, I think where you were maybe going with that is like, they, they kind of understand this experience, what's happening here. Whereas uh, the average person has never rented a office space or retail space or 
ran a hotel, but it seems it seems doesn't seem as that hard to run run an apartment building or a self storage facility. Like you've probably been a renter there before. You kind of get what's going on, and it like it it makes sort of sense. Like, hey, I could potentially do this. Where I think the average person probably would not think they could run a hotel, but they could run a self storage facility. I think that's true. And so when I talk to owners and I discuss their backgrounds, they're they're across the board. It was like post office owners where there's like, it's not always the uh, life or real estate person. It actually often isn't. It's it's a mom and pa owner who uh, had a completely different career, um, who, who saw the ability to be able to do it. You know, part of it is like, there's very good organizations and information out there where you can get like a rough sense of what you need and uh, there's a lot of technology out there that can help you do it. And so it's, uh, you know, people go to a convention at one of these major institutional like conferences and they can get a general sense of what they need to do. Interesting. And then would you say most of the return is coming from appreciation today, uh, cash flow, paying your loan down? I know that's not, I'm sure, how Elmdale's looking at it, but um, where you guys are targeting a certain IRR, but like the average person. What would they say? Where's my return coming from? And do you like this? How am I making money? Most of it is from cash flow. Uh, their ability to, um, you know, have their rates match market over time and just uh, predictability of like uh, their expenses. I mean, the variable expenses and storage type of facilities that we own, it's like real estate taxes the properties that we own in the South, like in particular Florida, like insurance, and then like snow removal expense are like your major variable expenses, in including payroll, of course, like that's a very big one. Um, and so there, there's a lot there that can be managed and controlled and, and kind of easily understood. So it, it is it is the reliable cash flow stream that people tend to like. Um, though the component to that though is like, there is a seasonality effect to storage. Um, and so people managed different occupancies um, throughout the year. So you see a lot of facilities that are full or close to full in the summertime uh, not be that way come February. Um, but that's that seasonality effect is different throughout the country. Like that might be true around Chicago, but then in Florida where you have a lot of folks that are um, you know, there seasonally, it could have a completely different seasonal effect. So then when do you get peak occupancy and rents and storage? We see it toward the end of summer typically. Um, but again, it depends on the market. Yeah, that's interesting because the same thing with our apartment deals, it depends on where you're at. Like Chicago, you want to have all your leases ending between May and September, really May and August if it's ending at the end of the month. Um, that's when you get peak rents. And then there's a really big drop off if, when you start getting into October. Uh, and then Phoenix, it's, you have a way bigger window, uh, because it's, this is more driven by the weather here in Chicago, I'd say. Um, so really like there January to October is good. And then maybe you'll have your peak peak rent in May when same thing in Chicago, where you're getting your normal renters plus all the new grads in college, where even if your deal doesn't cater to new graduates, let's say, but there's just that, there's just a lot more renters, uh, right then and then maybe like a little push before school starts and then but it's pretty pretty dead in the holidays so and then if anything slows down they always blame it on the weather it's right like too hot of but course, of course but that's not um doesn't seem to be a factor like if it's hot outside or not so then what are cap rates just kind of like generically on a self-storage deal not uh, a value-add deal just a stabilized run-of-the-mill storage deal so in secondary markets, I think they're somewhere like around a six, seven percent type of cap rate if they're stabilized. Um, I think that if you were to go into the cities, like the urban areas, you would see um, cap rates that are much lower than that. Um, you know, there still is a good group of people that are buying properties unlevered, uh, where in other words, they're just buying them for cash because of the size. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the, the issue is, is like right now, if you're buying at like a six or 7% cap rate, a stabilized property, 
that's like the interest rate that you're being quoted by a bank right now too. So it becomes very skinny um, and your ability to like generate a meaningful yield if you have debt on properties, which most people do. Interesting. But then I think before you were saying most of the returns from cash flow, then right. how are they doing that? The The way that people are buying those stabilized properties at those types of interest rates and cap rates is that they believe that they're going to have rent growth that will grow their way into a cash on cash return that they're happy with. Okay, got it. But but that's been part of the major disconnect right now in storage and probably in multifamily too, where people are throwing up appraisals that they got from January 2022 and they're saying, I want this price. And because of how much interest rates have moved up, changes in the economy, like uh, rent growth expectations, people are unwilling to offer those types of prices. And so there's been over the past six months, a moment of like, I, I know you want that five cap or that four and a half cap that you saw from your appraiser a year ago, but that's not where the market is today. And in fact, that I, you know, it's for that same reason that I could see that six or seven cap rate continue to move upwards because people want to get paid for the risk and kind of like the moment in time, especially if they're believers that we're in a meaningful recession right now. Yeah. But do you think there's going to be that uh, if we're in a recession, rents grow in storage still slower than in, let's say, of regular times? Um. You know, I think so, because what you have is um, in storage, you have a tightening of the belt, just like in any other asset class where it's like people look around and they go, where where could we cut costs? Um, and some people turn to the storage unit as a solution. But what happens later as the recession continues to elongate is those same folks are like, we need storage right now because our lifestyle is changing right now and we're downsizing or we're moving to a different part of the country that's more affordable or whatever the reason may be. That's when storage flips again to being a need. And so it's like, it depends on where you are within the cycle, uh, within a recession, you know, that's when you'll start seeing variable rental growth, if that makes sense. So like in the early moments, you'll see you'll see some weakness. Yeah, no, it does. And I know that it's, I mean, this thing you hear constantly, um, you know, always storage is like how resilient it is. So then I didn't know, does that actually mean like it's, uh, it just kind of will be able to hold its own in the recession or it's going to like, ex you know, really not explode, but like do even better than in the. It, at times it can, times. it absolutely it can. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you see that in, in moments of like, you see it sometimes in Florida moments where there's a hurricane that comes through and there's like winners and losers within storage where it's like people who are not affected by uh, the hurricane, um, their occupancies go up, their rents go up because there's a need. Um, and it's not even like, it's not trying to be predatory or anything like that. It's just like the demand changes instantly. Um, yeah. And so um like i said it's like that lifestyle change that has the biggest impact yeah i just wanted to clarify that because if cap rates are uh, in part going up because rent growth might not be as high in the future i wanted to just clarify wanted to ask more on that because it's uh you know it, that's happening in multifamily and is a lot more obvious there where like cap rates have gone up a lot in multifamily too and when people ask what's the reason for that drew like it's not just interest rates is what i say it's if you look at how cap rates moved in general it's the more reliant this market was on growth like everyone whatever markets people were thinking were going to grow the most uh back last january let's say and now with everything is like slowing down and not growing the markets that you were banking on that growth the cap rates moved up more and it sounds like it's similar. Um, Very much storage. so, I, especially in a product type where you have um, a variable rents, where you have rents changing every day, you know, month to month leases. Um, interest rates aren't the only reason why cap rates would would be affected. You know, it's like uh, people's people were 
purchasing a lot of storage properties, even when interest rates were low, it cap rates that on paper didn't make sense because their expectations was that rent growth was going to go up substantially. And so those expectations have been more tepid, I think, now than they, they were a year ago. And so that definitely has an impact. So it's like instead of people putting in like a 15% growth rate into pro forma, like maybe they're not putting in a growth rate. Maybe it's a single digit growth rate. And so it's like across the board, people's expectations are changing and people's ability to like grow out of whatever the price is today to where they're going to be three years from now is different uh, and, and, and people's analysis. And so you're spot on. So let's say before things started slowing down, so let's say like last February, what were um, what would you say you guys were underwriting for rent growth? Like you not not like okay, there's a ton of loss to lease, and we're gonna move it to market, and that's twenty percent. Just your typical, you know, year one, year two, year three kind of rent growth. Yeah, you know, for us, we we, we usually have like a stabilized like four percent rent growth, but it. Um, the type of product that we buy is not stabilized, which makes it hard for me to answer your question because we would be purchasing properties sometimes that had, um, you know, class B product where we were going to be building class A product right next to it. Or um, sometimes the properties that we were purchasing weren't very well managed. Um, and so, you know, we were going to be able to bring that to market. And so it's like, I'm not trying to skirt skirt around the answer, but like the stabilized properties that you're describing aren't really the properties that we buy at Elmdale typically. What's your guys' hold period though on these? Um, you know, we'll put an analysis of like five to seven years, but we're long-term holders by nature. Um, but then in your model from year three, you already stabilized like three to seven. It's like 4% rent like 4% growth. 4% rent growth. What are you guys doing now? Um, you guys change that or? No, um, you know, what, where I'm less aggressive is like assuming we'll be able to um, quickly grow into market as fast as maybe I thought before, where it's like, you know, market dynamics are changing, occupancies are changing. And so I might not be like, oh, yeah, day, you know, three months from now, we'll be right at market. You know, I might have a much slower. Yeah, we're rate. doing the same thing or it's, you know, a year ago, the glass is half full. You know, now it's half empty, if you will, out there. And like we'd see like one or two apartments rent for, let's say, 1650 and the rest of the buildings at 1450. And we'd be like, oh, we can go to 1650, maybe plus like in a in a minute here. Now, now we're like, oh, they well, that was like four months ago. Who knows? We could even do that now. Let's right. do sixteen hundred, and this, you know, still a two hundred dollar increase. Let's see how it looks there. Um, so I know what you're saying completely. And that type of conservatism is happening in every investment shop. And so, kind of to your point on it's like, hey, it's not just interest rate. It's really not. It's it's people's people's optimism is changing. What are you guys underwriting for expenses then? Um. So. Uh, in terms of our rent growth for our expenses? Uh, yeah, so like, okay, if you do in top line, you know, rent growth, let's say 4% once it's, it's, you know, plus you're catching up the loss to lease, you know, the rent's below market. And then your expenses, how are you growing those? Similarly, um, kind of like three or 4%, the, the, but we pay closer attention to like payroll expenses, to real estate tax expenses and insurance expenses, depending on where we are in the country, where that's much more variable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have a similar answer then where we're doing a different percentage for property taxes and, uh, the markets we're in insurance is, uh, not exploding. You know, we're not in Florida and some of these places where, um, Chicago, Minnesota, Arizona, it's not been, it's not been so bad compared to other places insurance wise. Um, but we we definitely we've we've dropped our growth rates a lot. Like year one, we're doing zero right now, and then next and then year the next year two, and then stabilize at four. Sure. And these are in what would be like growth markets too. Right. But it's hard to see like okay, you're gonna my example deal. You're gonna raise those rents to sixteen hundred. You know, in the next year plus now it's gonna grow more. It seems like too much of a stretch now. That makes so. sense. But then, yeah, wanna um, maybe jump to something else? Then, like a common uh, 
strategy I've seen. And it seems like you guys are doing the opposite maybe, but in storage, like a lot of, you know, groups like shops like yours, what they'll do is they'll buy or build a bunch of storage properties. And then they'll like a lot of these companies, and I don't know which ones, cause I'm not in the space, but like something like extra space or, uh, what have you public storage, like you can hire them to manage your facility. And then they also want to buy, they, they were a potential buyer too, where they want to buy stabilized facilities. So, I mean, a common strategy I've seen is people acquiring them, then having extra space or one of those companies manage it and then eventually selling it to extra space or just getting a portfolio of extra spaces put together. Uh, and does extra space do it, uh, like that? Do you know? Um, so the major REITs do have property management arms that where they third party property manage. And it's not only a source of like income for the REIT, but it's also a potential pipeline for acquisitions, just like you said. But just to make sure I don't I'm using an example where they don't, they, that company doesn't actually do it, but I think they do. I think they do. My friend, uh, Gabe, he, they built one out in the burbs here and extra space manages it. So, um, anyways, like that, I see people doing. And you guys are creating your own brand. We are. So um, there's a reason for it. So our model in general and types of uh, types of management has been more of a hub and spoke model where we have um, like a regional home office. And then uh, either some of the properties will be managed remotely or on site, um, depending on the dynamics of, of that area. Um, but it's, it's a model that is expanding into like a hybrid of remote management and not, uh, and it's something that, um, Elmdale kind of in the early moments was like, you know, we see the benefit of being able to control our own management company and, uh, manage these properties in a way that makes sense, uh, from an investor standpoint. Um, and so they, you know, for me, it's been tremendously beneficial too, as I look at a pro forma and I look at a, a potential way that, um, you know, property cash flows and make sense. I can have a discussion with our, um, property management operations team and they give me very real and really helpful feedback because they're the boots on the ground. Um, and so having, the vertical integration, like we're vertically integrated for development. We have in-house architecture as well. And so having the vertical integration from property management to development acquisitions, three of us working together, um, I think it makes for better investment decisions and better expectations on like what's actually achievable as opposed to like me being in a office alone being like, I think we're going to hit these rents and we're going to perform with this. And you know, this is like roughly what it's going to cost for us to do it. Like we can actually all work together to figure that out. And we saw the benefits early of that. But do you think, don't you think like people are getting a premium using some of these brands that are like, like maybe well known across the country you guys uh, in terms of like their cap rate? Uh, like, no, well, let's say more just rents. So like, would someone, does someone pay more for extra space than, um, than store safe? Would you say there's uh, I have found that there's a commodity component to storage, which is one of the reasons why ma and pa owners can self-manage and perform relatively well because, uh, um, you know, you're in the commercial real estate business you know, like one or two storage companies, like you probably don't have a sense of like who's considered the best operator of their facility, which is like the reality of the consumer. Like the consumer is focused on like distance price, um, like how they feel when they go to a facility. They're not like, I don't think there's, I personally don't think there's an association of like luxury brand operators and uh, like where people are willing to put their stuff and, and, Therefore, like they're willing to pay a premium because it's with that brand. I, I would think there'd be a, a premium with trust. Like I've heard of the lockup. I've heard of extra space before. Like I know, uh, like I would trust my stuff being there more than at a one-off location with just like the owner running it. Um, 
Depends what you're storing, though. I, I, the stuff I have in storage, I, I don't really... No, no, it's no. It's, like, not I, expensive, so... I think that's a fair comment, and it's, like, uh, as, a, as, like, a consumer who's also in real estate, maybe that would be a differentiating factor for you. But when you look at rents within a radius, there isn't, like, a major institutional premium that I see. Um, and so... You know, for you, that could be a really important factor, but I'm not seeing it in the market. Interesting. Well, it's, it's, I could see it being important, uh, depending on what you're storing. But for me, I'm not storing stuff that's high enough value to actually, uh, it's kind of like, do going, that. so oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, just where it went, uh, like I rented based on proximity. It's literally one block down, take a right. But that's very typical. People rent based off of proximity. People will put their like multi million dollar RV in a place that's convenient for them, not because it's managed, in my opinion, not because it's managed by some institutionally like world-renowned known storage operator. Um, and so it's kind of like that comment on brand recognition. And when I think about it, it's kind of like multifamily too. Like there are some heavy hitters in multifamily, right? There's probably some people that in your mind are like really incredible operators. But when, you, when you're like in a completely different field, you just want a place that's nice in an area that's convenient for you. I don't think you're really thinking about like the management component. Your expectation is that the management's going to be good. Interesting. And in, in in my view, you know. Yeah, I think that uh, yeah, there's just there's a trust factor with like a potentially like a bigger company, let's say. But I don't know if there's a quality factor. And so, anyways, but that I was curious what was actually playing out then. How are you guys gonna exit this eventually? Then you just gonna you sell the whole company, probably the whole you know, kit and caboodle at once. We'll we'll see. Uh, right now, we want to grow to be institutionally large enough where we can decide whether it's kind of IPO, continue to just hold. Um, and so, uh, time will tell. Okay, I like it. All right. Well, then let's close with. Um, Maybe then for just your individual investor, they're not going to get do an IPO most likely. So let's, um, I guess first, like what are some negatives with self-storage? We talked the whole time, like it's all just uh, roses and sunshine, basically. What's the, what's the negatives here? Sure. Well, the, the negatives are there is a seasonality to the business, right? And so it's like how your cash flows look around Chicago and like the summertime versus how they look right now, like in January are going to be very different. And so you have to manage that. Uh, if you, if you're trying to live off of your cash flow, like knowing that there's going to be, um, peaks and troughs throughout the year. Um, you know, you do have to manage hundreds of tenants in a facility and that's not nothing like that's where it's like the customer facing component of it, where it's like some people are going to be very, uh, quiet and, and, you know, they're going to be easy to manage. Other people are going to be very demanding, just like in an apartment building. And so, um, you have to figure out the best way to, to handle that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of accounting that goes into having hundreds of tenants in a property. So managing that as well. Um, and it's like, it's not like, um, there aren't capex issues that do come up they do sometimes you have to replace doors replace roofs uh sometimes people transition their the quality of their product so maybe they'll have a, a gravel uh flooring and they'll want to change that to you know something that looks nicer and so um you know there definitely is an operational component to it it's not like a, a triple net lease play where you just clip a coupon um, and you don't have any responsibilities like, uh, you, you know, these leases are, are gross leases. The only thing that the tenants pay for are the rent and tenant insurance. If, if that's an offering and aside from that, like you're responsible for the variable expenses and, and the havoc that, that could c come with that. But it's like, when you compare that to other gross leases, storage is a very good place to be. Um, and, but it's just like, it, it it's not without the work you have to put in a lot of work and um uh, that's why like I, I don't want to make this sound like it's a coupon clipper business it's not yeah especially if you're going to be uh even if you're going to hire third-party management like you need to be 
on top of your management where this isn't right. The, the rents aren't just set and in place, you know, uh, like 10 year leases here, like on a shopping center or industrial deal. Maybe this is, um, you know, you gotta be on top of operations or you're going to have people leaving and they're not being replaced with new tenants or right. paying lower rates. Right. And then, yeah, everybody check out if you're in self storage, how to make money off the insurance. That's a, a huge way. Everybody's making money where you need to have insurance uh, on your stuff. Yeah, I mean, so. it's, uh, you know, it is it is um, a huge benefit to have it from a tenant standpoint, but it is interesting how, like, um, uh, there's so many different insurance people that are trying to get into the business because it is, uh, uh, people see the value of, like, owning those types of businesses, like the tenant insurance businesses. Um, and, uh, but it, but it's important, like, um, you know, there are, there are moments where there's an accident or something like that. And people, people need to have some kind of like monetary value for their stuff. And so there it, it's, it's definitely more than just like uh, a profit center. Like it's, it's a important thing for tenants to have. It is, but it's a big profit center for the buildings. So that, uh, I remember I'm at, I, when I was renting at, uh, so the lockup, I think they, what it was monthly was like eye popping. If you bought it from them, I mean, it was covered or at least I told them it was covered on my homeowner's insurance. So yeah. I got around it, but, um, they're making money there on that. Yeah. So that's the thing. So it's like something to think about too. If you're like a renter is what would you rather do? Right. Would you rather have it covered through your homeowner's policy or would you rather just use the coverage that's offered at the self-storage facilities? So what then, uh, let's close with, so how can like the average person invest in storage or like what tips would you have just for someone getting into this that's gonna wanna buy their own deal? What would you say? Yeah, you know, there's um, there's big national and regional conferences, uh, like the, the, the two big institutional conference like um, uh, companies out there is SSA and ISS, um, which, uh, are you can like look them up ssa self-storage or iss self-storage then there's uh like different types of like um research tools out there like different uh almanacs out there that could like help guide you on like your underwriting um and uh you, you can get a sense pretty quickly of like rough numbers for how to evaluate a property and it's like within the realm of reason um, by going to one of these events or by purchasing the research that, that could help explain this to you. Um, what's, what's charming about the industry is that there are groups on social media that, uh, people buy and sell storage on. So you can go on Facebook and you can find, uh, groups that are showing their, you know, 80 unit storage facility that they would like to sell without, uh, you know, off market. Um, and so you can find these places in the places that you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect. Um, so I'm sure that there's a following on, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever it is. But, uh, um, you know, if, if you're interested regionally in storage, I would recommend that you look up the brokers that are, um, selling self storage product in that area and get in touch with them. So combination of like getting in touch with the different major conferences where they go through this exact type of issue. It's really great for um, beginners to like um, purchasing like general good underwriting uh, market research out there to finally like seeing seeing what exists in your marketplace, whether it's like uh, through social media outfits or talking with uh, local brokers is probably the best way to get started. In the Almanac you're talking about, where do you find that? Um, there is a, a self-storage Almanac. So I think if you just like uh, Google that, Google that, you'll okay. find it. Yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. Well, yeah. Great job, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you, Drew. Great to be here. Cool. You want, do you want to plug anything or people get in touch with you? Yeah. I mean, if you want to look, if you want to learn more about storage, like I'm always happy to, uh, to chat with different folks. So, uh, you can, you can shoot me an email. You can send me an email at mmazur at elmdalepartners.com. 
um, and would love for you to check out uh, what we have right now. So our portfolio of storage is under our flag, storesafe.com, S-T-O-R-S-A-F-E.com. So you could check it out. You can see my mug on there. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. Great. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Good job. Thank you. All right. We'll see you on the next one. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.